All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. We are in a series. If you're brand new to NBC or you're here uh, as a guest with a family uh, that's going to be baptized, we are in a series called The Story. And this is a, basically it's a series that the whole goal of it is to get us from Genesis right now to the book of Revelation in April and select key passages to help us understand the overall storyline of the Bible. And all those key passages that we're going to be studying are all in the book, the story. You can get those out uh, at the guest hub for five bucks. Um, And it's been so cool to see people actually getting in and reading their scriptures every single day, getting to know what God's working and his plan throughout scripture. And so snag one of those. Uh, Last week was chapter four. This week, we encourage everyone to read chapter five, and then we'll talk about it uh, next weekend. So if you've got your storybook, you can turn in it to page 43. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Exodus 1, and we're going to be ping-ponging around in Exodus as we get to this very, very familiar story. Um, You could have not shown up a day in church and known the story I'm about to give to you, the account of Moses. Because seriously, if you've watched a cartoon or Charlton Heston or something, you know, you know Moses, right? So the thing is, is that, that that's something that's so familiar. And yet, there's something amazing. When we look at what we talked about last week, the fact that God has this, uh, this phenomenal way of working through the lower story and the upper story of our life. Last week, we talked about how the lower story is the, like the timeline, all the historical context of our life. You know, when we were born, when, when we, you know, when we were a little kid, when we fell off our bike, when we, when we fell in love, when we got hired, all the different things that take place on the timeline of our life, the ups and the downs. And that all we see is the lower story. And Joseph last week helped us understand that there's not, that there's more that meets the eye. There's an upper story as well. And the upper story is God working out all things for his glory and our good. And so th- where we see the upper, the upper story and the lower story fuse together and actually harmonize is in this passage. If last week was a revelation that through Joseph, he said the thing that you intended for harm, God intended for good, that there's these two, these dual stories going on throughout history and our history. This week is a week of taking a step and seeing how they flesh together back and forth and really answering the question, who's in control here? Like for real, is this God? If God is God in control or is it me? Is it, as far as the lower story is concerned, is God the one who's navigating this or is it me who's navigating this? And this is something that, um, that theologians call the decree of God. The fact that God has decreed a, a timeline and a history and, and we actually get a chance to take a look at that through this, the life of Moses. And the first thing that we, we see in this is the definition of this kind of starting to get fleshed out. God's decree defined, if you want to just like summarize it super fast, is this is all part of the plan. This is, to, this is all part of the plan. Like, you don't sweat it. This is all part of the plan. How many of you, um, l- like, make plans, whether it's in your family or your workspace? Like, you're a planner and you make plans. Okay. How many of you um, know what it's like to have a plan change and you're the type of person that freaks when the plans change? Okay, that's me. I don't have to be the one who's planning stuff, but if I plan something, Let's stick to the plan because I don't care if it's like what movie we're picking or restaurant we're going to. If we're going to do this and then you want to do something else, that freaks me out because I, I was, because I'm McFadden and I'm like, this is the plan. Let's go with it. God's decree is that this is all part of the plan. And, and actually we see that in a Puritan, 200, uh, no, 300 and, 
27 years ago, this Puritan gave a sermon, and his name was Samuel. And, and this guy named Samuel Willard, on July 15, 1690, he started off his sermon with that. What, what is the decree of God or the decrees of God? And he says this, Samuel says, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now who can disagree with that, right? Seriously, Sammy was right. And we see that Sammy was right because of scripture. Isaiah talks about the fact that when we get into Isaiah 14, he says, this is the plan determined for the whole world. Not just the Hebrews, not just the Jews, for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over nations for the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? So who can go toe to toe with God? Nobody. If God's going to plant something, there's no one who's going to be able to stand up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just put the brakes on that, Lord. That's not going to happen. And, and later on in Isaiah, he actually quotes God as saying this. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times and what is still is to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Now again, who can disagree with this? Christians. Christians can disagree with this. In fact, not just Christians. Not only Christians disagree with this, but also scientists disagree with this notion. And they don't disagree with this notion because it's theological or about God. Within reality outside of faith, for those who are, are people not of faith, they actually split this into two categories. One of free will and the other of determinism. And free will, in short, is basically my choices are king. Like, I, what, what I choose is what dictates my reality. I chose where I went to school. I chose what I had for lunch. I chose who I fell in love with. Those are my choices. I have free will. Determinism, on the other side, is evolutionary biology makes the choice. And um, actually, a big proponent of determinism is the famed atheist Sam Harris, uh, who definitely doesn't believe in God, but he's, he's a big fan of determinism. And what he says is this, everything in our life, all of our choices reflect prior causes. In 2012, he wrote a book on the delusion of free will. He says, you think that you're choosing something, but you're not. You are the product of millions of years of evolution. And the fact that you think that you're making it is all in your head. You think you fell in love with this person because you chose that. No, you're actually chemically predisposed to fall in love with that type of person. You think you like Mexican food? You don't. Although you should. Your brain, your brain is actually what is hardwired. You're the chemical, you're, you're, you have no choice in it. Everything, everything in reality is determined. Your reality is determined. And they could actually come out with a way to... Boil it all down to an equation on the choices that you have made and the choices you will make. Everything is determined. A majority of scientists find themselves more and more, the more mechanical that they realize that the whole universe operates by some kind of law, it must mean that we're all just so mechanical that free will is an illusion. The reality is determinism. So scientists disagree with that, but a majority of them fall into the determinist camp. Now Christians, as I said, also disagree on this thing, but they don't call it determinism, but more pre-determinism, or maybe a better way of putting it, God's sovereignty. You know, God did this, and it's not evolutionary biology that makes the choice, but it's God who makes the choice. So between these two, it's kind of like, the, for a Christian, Christians have disagreed on whether or not I am the one on the free will side that has chosen God, 
or God has chosen me. I am the one who chooses to, to do this or that. And this is, history is a reflection of mankind either obeying God or running away from God. Or God has ordered every single detail down to the wire, every single detail. When people reject God, he sends them to hell, and that's totally just. And when people receive Jesus, it's because he has chosen them in advance to... Actually, no. Free will, right? People have chosen God. They either choose God, and God is aware of the fact that I'm going to choose God, because he's God. He knows everything. Um, God knew that when I was eight years old, I would, I, would, I would surrender my life to him. That's free will. Sovereignty over here on this side, those are in the sovereignty camp, would say, no, actually, God chose you, and actually, he's chosen those who are going to hell as well in advance. And God is just, and God is just. And so within this, this realm, you have actually people like saying, well, what is it? I mean, what's the percentage? And if you take a look at it and you try to figure out the percentages, um, some people say, well, as far as this, if I'm in the sovereignty camp, maybe more on the Calvinistic side of the spectrum, I'm going to like say it's 100% God and it's 0% me. Free will, agreeing with Sam Harris, is an illusion. It's, it's the, you, you think that you have free will, you think you have choice, but you don't. It's all completely God. And then there's other people um, within uh, theological circles that say, no, 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 no. It's 100% me. That's why God is just. He gives us an opportunity. We run away from him or we run with him. And God punishes or rewards. And so it's 100% us. And God is just because he's omniscient, knows everything that's going to happen in advance. And there's some people who are just like super cowardly. And they just go, uh, 50-50. It's a little bit of both, right? So it's a little bit of God. It's a little bit of me. And it kind of mix mixes in there somewhere. Which is it? Okay, because seriously, like if you look at, when we look at the Bible, is it God's sovereignty or is it free will? Which is true? If I was going to say, uh, we, we need to make a decision here, it's God's sovereignty or free will, which do we see scripture reflect? Both. And that's what's kind of confusing. This is the interesting thing. When we see scripture, we see scripture saying this. In God's plan, it's 100% God and 100% our choice. 100% God's sovereignty, predestined, foreknowledge, 100%. And 100% our choice at, at the same time. Now, scientists are like, I don't know what to do with this. It seems like it's true, but I can't make it work. We look at scripture and say, we, it's just as confusing to us, but we actually see how it can. And we actually see how it can through this passage. The reality that God has got 100% sovereignty, and yet he works through 100% human choice. Take a look. Uh, this, the second part about this helps us understand that God's decree in practice shows us that it's all God and all man. That 100%, 100%. When we take a look at the story of, of Moses, we have um, Pharaoh deciding to enslave Hebrews for 400 years. Okay, let's think about last week. Remember Joseph? Was Joseph at the time, um, at the end of that, that account, was Joseph um, a bad guy in Egypt or was he like a hero? Superhero, Right? Big time, because he saved their tail. He saved not only Egypt's tail, but everyone else. He turned Egypt into like the mega power of, of hope for the world around when everyone was starving for, after seven years of drought. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream right, and because of that, they had all this abundance. They were able to help out the entire area. And he gets elevated to second in command only to Pharaoh, which never happens unless everyone is starving. If everyone is starving, the guy who had the good idea about food he gets promoted. So Joseph is so promoted, they're blown away with him. They're like, dude, you are, you are set for life. In fact, 
You want to bring your family in? Bring your family in. I, I heard that you like reunited with your brothers. That's touching. We're going to have a Hallmark crew doing this whole story. But just have them come on over and have them move in. And so all of Joseph's family and that whole crew moves into Goshen, this part of Egypt. And so they, get, they, they start to like thrive. And all of a sudden the Hebrew people do what the Bible commanded Hebrew people to do back in Genesis. Make more Hebrew people. And all of a sudden more and more Hebrew people are happening. And this becomes a problem. Take a look at page 43 if you've got your storybook or if you've got uh, your Bible, Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us, leaving our country. Okay, if, you, if you're a fan of news at all and you like watch and see what's happening in Europe, a lot of European governments, a lot of Europeans are freaking out because there's a lot of refugees that are moving into their country. Why does that disturb them? It disturbs them because they fear that if this group comes in and they overpopulate us, they will take our culture. And they're actually, we don't know who these people are. We don't know how safe they are. What if an enemy wants to fight us and they join that enemy? The exact same thing Pharaoh was freaking out about. And so Pharaoh had that type of concern. So what Pharaoh does is he says, we got to deal shrewdly. And Pharaoh decides to enslave Hebrews for 400 plus years. Was that a good thing or an evil thing for him to do? Okay, let, let me make this easier. Who's a fan of slavery? <laughs> Who thinks it's a good idea? No one. That's me. That's right. This was evil. Totally evil. That was an evil thing for the Pharaoh to do. Messed up. And... God works his plan through this. Did God cause him to do this evil thing? No. But God works his plan through this. And, this. and the interesting thing is that this doesn't take God by surprise. And we realize that it doesn't take God by surprise because of the fact that this was prophesied back when we studied Abraham, when God first gives him the promise that I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing for the whole world. Remember when we were talking about that? Look at the account. When we were talking about the covenant, when God actually went through the covenant for Abraham, we read this, but it meant nothing to us two weeks ago. Listen to it now in light of what's going on with Moses and what's going on in Egypt and take a look. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Remember, this is when the covenant is taking place. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for how long? 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Now, if I told you I was psychic, what are you laughing for? <laughs> if I told you I was psychic and I said, okay, I'll, I'm going to prove it. Someone in this room has recently lost something. And, well, there's someone else in this room that has back pain. There's people that would be like, he knows me. He knows what's going on. This is not that. This is not like some type of fortune cookie prophecy. This is a specific prophecy. Abram, your people, I'm giving you all these awesome promises, but one of the things that you have to realize is that historically on the lower field of the story, there's going to be something happening where your people are going to be enslaved. Let me give you the specific amount of years, 400. And that's going to happen. 
And, and we all of a sudden, we, we get a chance to see that that is in fact what God was doing. God was, did this derail God's plan? No. This was part of God's plan. Let's look at the next part. Pharaoh chooses to kill Hebrew babies. Okay, is killing babies a good thing? Thank you. I'm really glad we're on board with that one. No. No, it's, it's really not. It's bad. Let's take a look at what happens here. Um, jump on over to page 44 at the top. This is Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. If we can't kill them off, if we can't suppress them through slavery, let's breed them out. Let's remove their capacity to procreate. And we'll throw away all the boys. The reason that he did this was because he, in, in, he put through them through slavery, but slavery wasn't solving the problem. Because what the Bible says is that slavery actually upped the amount of procreation that was taking place. I don't know why that happened sociologically, but it did. Slavery said, okay, all of a sudden the numbers are going up. He's like, that didn't solve the problem. And so he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill. We're going to kill every Hebrew boy that is born. And when the midwives delivering the babies refused to do so, he just basically said, okay, if the midwives aren't going to do it, any soldier that sees a, a baby boy that's been born and hasn't been taken care of, that's a Hebrew, throw him into the Nile and drown him. This is evil. And God works his plan through this. And God's not done. God continues on. God calls Moses. One, Moses wants to bail, but ultimately obeys. Is obeying God good or evil? Good. This is good. And God works out his plan through this. Pharaoh agrees to free the Hebrew slaves, then goes back on his word. He goes back on his word to liberate the slaves. Is that good or evil? Evil. It's bad. Why would you do that? And God works out his plan through this. And in fact, in this one, we see something that really disturbs people, Christian and non-Christian. You may have been disturbed this week when you read this. When we read this portion, we recognize that Pharaoh choosing to go back on his word comes after God does what to his heart? Hardens it. Has that ever disturbed anyone when you read that? Like, wait, God, if you've got the capacity to harden someone's heart or soften someone's heart, why don't you just soften his heart right in the beginning and Pharaoh like, just, would just have a, a mea copa and just like, oh, I'm so sorry. What was I thinking? Slavery. Okay, you guys are all free. Why didn't he do that? Instead, we have this account that God's hardening his heart. Why? Is God tempting Pharaoh into, into evil? Is he, is he causing him to sin? No. Because we see in James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what's happening here? If God is not causing Pharaoh to do evil, what is taking place? This is what's taking place. God is actually releasing Pharaoh to be as much of a dictator as he truly desired. Up to this point, if Pharaoh seemed like, a, uh, like a, anywhere near diplomatic, it was because God's grace was on him causing him to be better than he actually was. But what God, when he's hardening his heart, is doing is he's saying, okay, I'm going to step back my grace and I'm going to allow you to do what you would choose to do without me. He allows Pharaoh to do exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do, as evil as it was, for his ultimate purpose. 
And we see that in Romans. Uh, Romans, Paul talks about that. He says that, I, talking about Pharaoh, he says this, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Does God cause the evil? No. He allows Pharaoh to be the one who's making the choice that he would have chosen without God's help. He pulls back his grace so that Pharaoh becomes more Pharaoh than he was before. God's sovereignty and free will fusing together. And we see this throughout the Bible of God's sovereignty and free will fusing together. When Peter, um, at Pentecost, after Jesus had died and rose again, he gets up in front of this massive group of people and, and all these, these Jewish people, his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he he's just preaches the gospel to them. He gets out there and he gets in their face and he says this, this man, talking about Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We see both right here. We see in this passage, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. What is this? Sovereignty. It was foreknowledge. It was a, what kind of a plan? Deliberate. So Jesus crucified, Jesus being betrayed, was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Sovereignty. But then we got this. And... And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's free will. In the same verse, we see God's sovereignty and free will flirting with each other, happening. It's 100% God's predestined plan and 100% man's responsibility, man doing exactly what they would do. Um, a, a guy who's a Calvinist, he's a big time in, in the sovereignty side of the equation that I really respect and I quote all the time, Tim Keller Put it this way. I love this. He said, God's plan works through our choices, not around or despite them. Our choices have consequences, and we are never forced by God to do anything. We always do what we most want to do. God works out his will perfectly through our willing actions. It is 100% God's foreordained will, and it's also 100% man's free choice. I'm going to read this one final time. God's plan works, works through our choices, not around or despite them. Our choices have consequences, and we're never forced by God to do anything. We always do what we most want to do. God works out his will perfectly through our willing actions. So God's will, his decree defined is that this is all part of the plan. His, his will in practice, his decree in practice is all God and all man. And, and that leads us to what we do with this, which is, is God's decree in purpose. What's the purpose of all this? It's to cause us to trust him. If you've got um, your Bibles or your story uh, books, go ahead and go on over to page uh, 45 and 46. And this is in Exodus chapter 3. And you're going to catch up with us if you've got your Bibles in Exodus 3, 13 to 16. Listen to what happens here. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Okay, now let's pause there for just real quick. If you've got your Bible or your, or your storybook, I want to encourage you to underline the, there the angel of the Lord. Go ahead and put a box around it, underline it, something. In the Old Testament, bless you. In the Old Testament, when we actually see um, that phrase, the angel of the Lord surface, it's special. Because in the Bible, you see lots of angels. You have Gabriel, you have Michael, you have all these different angels. 
But when you see in the Old Testament that phrase, the angel of the Lord, scholars have looked at this and said, this is not an ordinary angel. In fact, this is an angel that receives worship from humans. Other angels do not do that. Who is this the angel of the Lord? And what the scholars believe is when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is in fact the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And so who is Moses encountering at the burning bush? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jump on over to the next page. This is uh, where we get to Exodus 3, 13 to 16. About halfway down the page when it says, Moses said to God, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites, and this is when, when God is calling him to go and liberate uh, all the Hebrew slaves. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is, na- what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's kind of cool that we're, we know these people now so well. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So how is this God's decree calling him into trust? God is saying this, Moses, I am calling you to trust me. I know this is making you nervous. I know, but I'm going to give you my name to pass on to my people for them to have courage and for them to put their trust in my decree. And this is my name. I am. Why is that significant? It's significant because no one was an atheist in this time in ancient history. Everyone had a God. You you made something and you put it on your wall and that was your God that protected your house. You worshiped a God that mythologically fought some battle for your people in ancient past. But God is actually separating himself from everyone else by saying, I am. These are all fraudulent pagan gods. They don't exist. But I am the one who does. I am the one who's not a created being, but someone who creates. I am the one who doesn't simply just deal with you from a a plaque you put on your wall, but I am talking you face to face. Moses, I am the one who's bigger than your excuses. I am the one who's bigger than your problems. I'm the one who's bigger than your doubts. I'm the one who actually is calling you into something bigger than you because I am the one who will walk with you through it. Trust me. Trust me. So what do we do with this? This reality of of God's decree. Well, we actually have, have, have an action step of simply respond to it biblically. Live each day as if your choices and obedience to God matter because they do. Never be the type of person that says, well, if God's sovereign and he chooses everything, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Scripture is full of things calling you into the movement of God. God is working through your choices. Live each day as if your choices and obedience to God matter because they do. You're someone who's here, here like, like, I'm not even a Christian. Great, I'm so glad you're here because I want you to hear this. If you've been on the fence about surrendering your life to Jesus because you've been fearing control or you've been going through, you've seen so much suffering that you don't know if you can trust this God, you can trust him. Surrender your life to him and live in peace knowing that God has a plan because he does. There's not a detail, a detail of the struggle of your life that God did not not only know about but is able to actually work into your good. We talked about this last week, but remember this. As, and we know, this is Paul speaking in Romans, and we know that God works all things together 
And by all things, he means all things. All things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that they might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and that those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. If you're in Christ and you look in the scope of your life and you see the tragedies, you can say this event was not good. It was evil. This divorce that broke my family wasn't good. It was evil. This, this, this tragedy that took place when the disease hit my family was not good. It was evil. Las Vegas, that event that took place in Las Vegas, not good. It was evil. But that was not something that derailed God's plan through the scope of all of time. God is able to work out every one of the details in our life, even the most tragic and horrific ones, to help us see that he has brought out of darkness hope, and he is our hope. And that word predestined, hold on to that as a beautiful word, because what that is saying is this, if you're in Christ, all of those tragedies cannot stop God's good for you, glorifying you. It's predestined. It's hardwired to your storyline. If you're in Christ, you have hardwired to the storyline of your life, ultimate good. And that's a promise from God. You know, when Moses was talking to Pharaoh, he, get, he, he called out 10 plagues. The 10th plague was the most horrific one. It was the one that was going to take the life of, of the babies in Egypt. Unless somebody took um, lamb's blood and spread it across the door. And if they did, the angel of death actually passed over that house. That's how we got Passover. See, our story is, that, that story is great, but it points to a greater story that we share. Because Jesus, Jesus did not allow death to pass over him. He embraced it. If you're looking for the most clear place where you're going to see the sovereignty of God and the free will of man combine, it's Jesus on the cross. You have all God, all man, freely willing as he bled and died for you and for me to make a way home for us. And so because of him, just like Moses, we're liberated. We can walk away from the shackles of the things that we're enslaved to. We can actually walk through the parted waters that he has crafted for us to do. And no matter what happens in our life, we know that he is, in fact, in charge. Today, um, and this weekend actually, there's eight people that are going to be baptized. In this service, we have three of those eight. And you're going to hear their story right now. And the thing is, is that you're going to see how totally different these people are. If you ever thought Christians were all the same, listen to this, because Christians are so different, coming from different walks of life, having different degrees of tragedy in their life, and yet Jesus pulling them through the darkness to show them him. Today, you're going to see as people actually experience the splitting of the waters, as they experience the baptismal waters. And that is simply a picture of people saying, I am dead in my sin. And I'm lining myself up with the death of Christ for me so that I could rise again, just like Jesus rose from the grave in the life that he's given me to live. When you see these people get baptized, I want to challenge you to cheer. Cheer, because for many of you, this is your story. It's a picture of your life. The fact that Jesus saved you too. So cheer. Go bananas, folks. Please. Cheer. And if you're not a Christian, even on the fence, allow these stories to speak into your heart. 
and cause that moment where you can actually respond to the decree of God with surrender and receive the forgiveness that he offers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that you do in fact do that. You have stepped into our darkness, into our brokenness. God, your will is greater than anything in our history that could seemingly derail it. God, I thank you for the fact that through Christ, we not only have forgiveness, but we have hardwired to our story glory and good. We don't deserve that. We don't, but we, we thank you for that. We thank you for giving us hope, but beyond hope, Lord, I th- we thank you for giving us reality, a reality that is marked by the fact that God became man to make way for us to come, put our trust in you, not in us, and receive eternal life that starts in this life. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for all this. It's in your son's name that we pray. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Take a look.